Hi, this is Brian Landau, and you're listening to The Drip, a podcast about how to caffeinate your campaigns. Today, I'm joined by Dan O'Mahony. Dan is GM and EVP at Inkhouse in San Francisco. In this episode, we talk about fostering an environment where young professionals can thrive, reducing employee churn, owned content strategies for startups, and why a crisis comms playbook is necessary even for early stage companies. In a few moments, you'll hear Dan talk about how Inkhouse has worked to streamline onboarding for new employees. There are new challenges with virtual firsts and hybrid workforces, and remaining committed to the best practices during onboarding is critical. In my day job, I talk with businesses about their audio strategies, and particularly for internal audio use, a question that I often get is where to start. What's the role or function or initiative that should be the first to adopt internal company podcasts? My answer to that is onboarding. Wow, that first week at a new job is so exciting, but so overwhelming. New people, new clients, new processes, new culture, new etiquette, new tools. It's wonderful, but it's a lot. There's so much to learn and so much to understand. Audio is a few things. For starters, it's really authentic. It's a human's voice. It's an incredible format to tell the founding story, to reinforce a commitment to DEI, to do customer profiles and interviews, and to elevate critical voices within the organization. It's also passive learning. Audio reinforces critical information differently than videos or written word content. You can go a little deeper. You can explain a little bit more. A new hire can now go for a walk and still access all of this critical information. Companies often feel pressure to create topical content when podcasting, but a series of onboarding podcasts can be evergreen. You might make some tweaks along the way, but what you create today will likely still be relevant next year. If anything, you'll probably add content to the mix. Venly is an audio platform for business, and we believe that your audio content should live where you do business. Using Venly, you can securely and privately share this content to your company Slack, Notion, Asana, SharePoint, all with enterprise-grade analytics. Are you interested in learning how audio might play a role and how you onboard talent? We've created a template to help you get started and included our best practices, recommended episode themes, and potential company stakeholders to elevate through the content. If you're interested, email me directly at brian at venly.co. That's brian, B-R-I-A-N, at venly, V-E-N-N-L-Y, dot C-O. And now, the very excellent Dan O'Mahony. Hi, Dan. Hey, Brian. How are you? Dan O'Mahony is Executive Vice President at Inkhouse and General Manager of the San Francisco office. He's been at Inkhouse for more than six years, and before that, he was at Launch Squad. He spent his careers helping startups, market leaders, and global brands define and own their industries. Dan likes to start with the story, strategy, and audience before diving into tactics. He also loves to get his hands dirty and still do real work. Dan was born in San Francisco and grew up in the Bay Area. He now lives in Marin County with his wife and his two and a half year old son, and they are expecting another son in October. Dan, you're super close, man. Like, you're, how are you yeah. feeling? Good, good. Uh, it's it's like, sort of like when I realized August was going to be so close, I, I kind of was like, I, it doesn't really occur to me because it actually might be late September, you know? So like the fact that we might be less than two months away is terrifying. We still have like three or four things we need to do to get like the house ready and get our older son in a new room and all that. So um, I don't know. 
it'll all work out, but I don't know how it's going to all work out. You know what I mean? <laughs> the, the, the dumbest thing that someone says to you when you're about to have a baby is get your rest now. I'm like, it's yeah. the worst, most meaningless piece of advice I've ever heard in my entire life. Like that's just not how rest works. It's totally true. And yet I'm the one that gives that advice now. Like I've done all the lame cliches to all the, you know, once I had a kid, I started being that way to all my, you know, parent, my friends that started becoming parents too. You can't help it, you know, cause there's really no way to prepare someone. It's like, there's, and there's all the, all the cliches are true, but all I know is I've heard zero to one is a lot harder of a transition than one to two. So I'm kind of banking on that because the first kid was that rocked everything. Uh, and I know the second one will, but hopefully, you know, we're a little more prepared this time just because we've, we've already done this once. No, you, you go from like zone defense to man to man. All right, let's dig in here. So agencies have long been seen as great fun places to start your career. If you want to work in communications, marketing, advertising. The work is exciting and interesting. You can be exposed to senior leadership at clients pretty early on in your career. And if you're at a bigger agency, it's an amazing network because you're surrounded by tons of young professionals. Return to work and distributed work models are really meaty topics, complicated, and virtually every business is being confronted with it right now. But there are some specific implications for agencies. How do you develop young professionals remotely when the nature of the work is creative? How do they build community with their peers? How do you think about this generation of recent college graduates that are looking to enter into agency life and how can they best be put in a position to succeed? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a question I spend a lot of time thinking about. Um, my my role as the GM of the agency, of the SF offices of our agency, it, a lot of it has to do with people management, you know, and, and making sure that everybody sort of has a, a plan and is empowered to succeed. And so you know, if, if um, I'm not telling you anything you don't know, but if someone's been doing this for six years and has worked at Inkhouse for three, then being remote is not that big of a deal. They know the people and they know how to get the job done, right? They're relatively self-sufficient. For someone that's new, um, I think, you know, they're hungry and craving feedback. And, you know, I remember when I was first starting out, I didn't even know if I was going to like this job or be good at it or anything. And so I wanted to interact with people a lot. And so, there's a few things you can do to make sure that your team is feeling kind of connected and, and energized still, even if they're remote. It comes down to the three C's, we call it, actually, as we talked about a hybrid workforce and in-house. The first is connection. I think we take for granted how much connection is built by just chatting with people, uh, walking through the hallway and whatnot. So we've tried to build in a few virtual experiences like that. And in-house, we do something called Forced Office Fun or FOF, um, which is every other Thursday. And so now what we're doing is once a month, it's in person. And then every other week, it's remote, right? So like we, we, we had to do remote before we are, even got to be in person. So we plan out activities that work better in a remote setting, like trivia, right? Where we break into small teams and get to know each other that way. Because 40 people on a Zoom doesn't really work. We encourage like one-to-one -one coffees, even if they're virtually um, we also take onboarding really seriously. You know, I think like onboarding used to be a matter of, you know, the first day, maybe people get ramped up, they get trained on their accounts. And then a lot of the work comes down to working alongside people. Onboarding is much more involved now. It probably always should have been more involved, but now it has to be because otherwise people kind of end up a little stranded, you know, and then I think in-person meetings when appropriate, you know, we, we've hired three or four people fresh out of college last, since last year. Most of them are not in the Bay Area, right? But a couple of them have visited the Bay Area since, and we've taken every chance we could to meet up with them and get together in person and whatnot. Um, so there's a lot of things you can do to drive connection. The second one I mentioned was, was challenge. And I think what happens is sometimes if you're not in the office and you're not around you know, your managers and like your bosses, you start to like 
I, I think the challenge, the feeling of being challenged might not be there, right? Or the feeling of like, I want to impress this person. I better get this done. And so we try to really make sure that while we're empowering people, we're also holding them accountable, you know, and, and making sure that their work is recognized. And when they're doing a killer job, we're calling it out. And when they need feedback that we're giving it to them. I think the worst thing you can do once you've given someone everything they need to succeed is then just giving them a break all the time because, oh, they're remote. I, I don't know. Like, it must be too hard. Like, let's give them a break. Like, I think you need to treat everybody equally. Right. And a part of that comes with just giving them the feedback they need to grow. And I, like I said before, I think folks that are just starting out crave that, um, you know, and part of that also comes down to us doing a good job explaining why what they're doing is relevant, because a lot of times what they're doing is some of the more administrative heavy work. And if you don't know how that fits into the big picture, that can be a real challenge. And the last is collaboration. You know, one thing we became pretty militant about is doing a screen share if we ever needed to walk through feedback. You know, if you Slack someone or even talk to them on the phone, it can be challenging. But if I pull up a Google Doc that you, Brian, wrote and sent to me and I have feedback, and I know, Brian, I would probably have a lot of feedback for you, um, I would I would screen, I'm kidding, I would screen share with you and I would, um, you know, walk you through the changes I made. And I think if you don't do that, you miss a point, right? And you, you kind of... You, you might miss out on some of the nuance that you felt like you communicated to someone, but they didn't get. And, and so I think that collaboration is really important. You know, sometimes also it's better to just pick up the phone to hash something out and it becomes less of a big deal than a Zoom call. So we've been very, try to be very serious about when we do which. And then we try to do a lot more virtual brainstorms because we're missing that um, in-person collaboration. So, you know, I think if you can drive connection, challenge and collaboration, um, the rest is really on the team to step up. But if you can't do those things, I think it's, it's going to be very, very hard for them to become a part of the culture, to get better, to grow, to find pride in their work. You know, so it, it's hard. And, and honestly, um, it, it's an ongoing challenge. But, you know, there's some definitely some things we do to try to, to make it easier. We can do a 360 review of my use of parenting cliches whenever you're ready for that. Yeah, yeah. and you could throw back at me my inability to, to pick a mic that picks up my audio clearly. We'll address that later. <laughs> are, are there some best practices specifically around onboarding that you've developed since COVID? You know, I think we had the best practices, but I think we weren't always sticking to them 100%. And um, we've, we've, I think one thing we've had to do is extend the life of onboarding. You know, I think before it was like really the first week was like, our office manager, Ashley, would get someone ramped up and walk them through like the 101. And then they'd meet with all the managers or VPs or both on the teams they were joining. You know, and then after that, it was sort of like learn on the job. And, and, and everybody had a manager, a mentor, and a buddy. Um, so a manager was like your direct person. They manage your everything. You meet with them every other week. Your mentor is someone you meet with every once in a while for big picture advice. And then your buddy is sort of someone who like, you know, maybe is six months ahead of you, right? So if you just started out of college, Maybe they just finished their internship program and just got hired full time or something like that. So they're not so far away that they forgot all about what you're going through. Right. So that all existed before. But now what we've had to do, I think, and I think, again, this is something that I think even if we were back to fully in person, we would still do is after giving a one on one on a client or on in-house, like two weeks later, go walk them through a lot of the same more information because then they're ready to actually ask questions. Right. The first week, no one even knows what to ask. So We've, we've developed multiple touch bases and then there's usually a 30 and a 60 and a 90 day check-in. Whereas, you know, before I think it was a 90 day check-in to start. Um, and so again, it's, I think it's doubling down on what we're doing and making sure we're a little more militant about holding ourselves accountable to it, which I got to say can be challenging, right? Because you're also asking someone who might be remote themselves to up their 
attention to someone. So it, it takes a team effort. And I think it also, it shows you how your agency operations really, really works and what kinks you might have to work out. Okay. I mean, is there a concern that remote work might increase churn because employees don't feel the same connection to the company or now maybe they're being tasked with, you know, making sure that the recent hires having a more seamless experience. This is another thing on their plate. What are the tools that are available to agency leaders to help retain their employees? Yeah. Well, let me just address the first part of that, of that question, because I think, yes, people who are thrust into a remote setting and don't want to be in that, I think that can definitely create churn, right? If I was like, I love coming into the office every day. I love the energy I get. Now I'm at home. I'm, I'm kind of bored or I'm stranded or I'm just kind of deflated. Um, that's true for some people. I think for some people, remote has actually made their lives better. But I think the bigger thing that's happening is that whether you're remote or not, the real question is like pre and post COVID, post COVID churn has just gotten worse. I think at every company, there's probably a few companies out there that are actually bucking that trend, but generally churn has gotten worse. I've, I've seen it with my friends. I've seen it with my coworkers. Once COVID hit and you had uh, all, a lot of the excuses people might've been using to not go try something new, new career, uh, go back to school, go work for a nonprofit, take a year off. A lot of those excuses went away. So I think the bigger question comes down to like, post-COVID, is this a moment in time or is churn just going to become sort of the new normal that everybody has to grapple with? You know, and I think the answer could be a little bit of both. You know, I don't know if it's always going to be this churny, but, uh, and, and, and retention wise, but, you know, more specific to your question, we're pretty serious about empowering remote workers, especially now that we've returned to the office, right? So we're back to a hybrid model. And so before everybody was remote. I was remote, you know, the, the, I could have been working with someone who was in New York or who was down the street from me and it was all the same. We're all on Zoom. But now we have some people going to the office and we have some people remote. And so our, our big concern is that now those remote people are going to become like second class citizens because they're going to miss out on stuff and they're not going to be at the, the focal point of the office. So we've enacted a few rules. I, I think the three things I talked about before apply, you know, driving connection, collaboration and making sure people feel challenged. There's also some very tactical stuff you can do like in the office, if it's like a, a five person call and three people are in the office and two are remote, we actually ask people to take their calls from their own computers so that there isn't like, a, oh, there's that one person that's remote and everybody else is together because we want to equal that playing field. Um, so there is a lot we can do to try to keep people engaged and involved. Um, but to go back to that earlier point, you know, I think churn and what's happening, you know, the great resignation of people have called it. I think that's a little bigger than remote work. I think it's the state of the world too, um, which is causing a lot of people to reconsider things and kind of ask themselves, you know, if I'm not going to take this leap of faith now, when will I? So it's complicated for sure. And I think it's something that like that, it, that question itself could probably warrant like an hour long panel if we wanted to. How do you balance good company culture with all of these factors that you just described, let alone like client work is demanding, right? So you've got all the environmental stuff, the client, billable hours, all the things. How do you think about that? Well, like on, on the one hand, I've always sort of felt like good good work and, and making clients happy is connected to good culture, not at odds with it, right? I think there's a line. I think, you know, if a client is being unproductive or abusive, God forbid, you need to have conversations about that really quickly because that can kill your culture. But if a client is demanding and they really want us to like deliver their A game, our A game, and you know that that should be a good thing for us. So with good culture, you also need to instill a, a, a need to win in your team. And so if people aren't 
competitive and wanting to push and wanting to do better, it actually doesn't work out quite well because part of, I think, a good culture is that people are happy to be there and they take pride in their work. Um, you know, again, I, I think, you know, we've resigned clients in the past if their behavior gets to a point where it's being toxic. And I can't say that we've ever regretted it. Um, but at the same time, we want people to be competitive and hungry, right? All the other stuff, though, what we've tried to do is sort of like ratchet up what we can do to help offering resources for people who are burned out. We've done, you know, office agency wide uh, mental health days. You know, we've done different things to really make sure people can take the time they need. It's hard, though, because I think I, my, I myself included now have a harder time separating like what might be bothering me in my personal life and what might be bothering me in my work life. And I think that's true for others. So um, what, what we also have to keep an eye on is like when people have issues or concerns, like what is it that in-house can fix and what is it that we can't, you know, because the lines have gotten very, very blurry lately. So it's an ongoing challenge. But I do think that the demanding client and the good culture can be mutually beneficial, not like, oh, you know, you get good culture for a little while, then you got to work really hard. And it's, it's sort of, it's more of a cycle versus like a, a tug of war. Let's transition and get a little bit more tactical. Sure. A lot of your work is with early stage companies and creating owned content can be just a huge lift. And when there isn't a lot of engagement, it feels like a waste of time. Mm -hmm. What's the lesson or maybe muscle memory that early stage companies can develop in establishing an owned content publishing cadence? Yeah, yeah, that's a really good question. I think, you know, like with PR, like owned content can take a little while to yield results. Um, I think if you can commit to like a long-term strategy, meaning like a year plus, it can yield some really interesting results, you know, and for owned content, I think it can, it can do everything from like all of a sudden you don't need, you know, a huge PR blitz to get your audience interested in something you're doing because you've already built a following and they're coming to you, whether on social or on your website or whatever. I think though, in the interim, especially with startups who are like, what did you do for me today? Forget what you did yesterday. You need to be really clear about what the goals are um, leading up to that point, or else you're going to set like your sights too high too quickly. And then you're probably going to fail, right? So if you're starting off on a program and owned content is a big part of it, the first three months might be about like, we just want to nail our audiences that we want to talk to. We want to find all the content that exists out there that we can repurpose and then we want alignment on what the three or four like big voices we want out there in, in, the, in like the content sphere. So there's like no results there. It's just alignment and goals. But then once you have that, you can start moving faster and saying like, all right, we're a consumer brand. What's really important for us is huge social followings because we want people to be constantly thinking of us because we sell shoes. So it's not like a once every 10 year purchase, it's maybe once every you know, few months purchase. Um, but that doesn't happen right away. You need to build an audience. And so the goals become really, really important. So, you know, it's, it's, it's the metaphor of walking before you can run, right? Like if you, if you can start that way, then I think it works really well. But with startups, again, it, it's all about speed, right? So you, you need to be proving your value right away. So it's, it's a little bit of a balance there. Who are the typical stakeholders for owned content during these early stages? The typical, you know, that's actually, that's actually a really good question. I mean, I think that Content I've noticed has started to fall more and more under comms. And I think comms, comms is sort of nebulous, right? So is content. Um, but, you know, comms becomes like PR and content, which in some ways I think companies interpret as PR being earned media and content being owned, right? So content is your blog, content is your social channels, content is videos you produce, it's audios you produce, it's like podcasts. And then comm, or uh, excuse me, PR, aka earned is like, 
bylines written by the CEO placed in Fast Company, you know, or, or um, a product announcement that you pitch out to a handful of trades that reach your key audience. So anyway, back to your question, I do think content rolls much more into comms and then eventually marketing. But then the flip of that is that you will usually have three or four uh, authors. And so you need their buy-in too. It could be the CEO, the CTO, it could be the chief marketing officer, but you're going to need their buy-in too, because their name is going to be on a lot of that content. And if they're not bought in, they're either not going to get involved or they're going to constantly oppose the work you're doing because it's not something they've necessarily bought into. So the strategy doesn't make sense. So it's a few key stakeholders, like at the executive level, depending on the business. And then I would say content usually rolls into comms and then marketing. Where does internal communication sit? Because a lot of your clients are at the company stage where they don't necessarily have a dedicated person for internal comms. Yeah. Are there content formats or strategies that are most effective for internal employee engagement when I don't have a robust function already set up? Yeah, um, it's really an interesting question because I think, again, not to belabor COVID, but like pre-COVID, I think this was a bit of an afterthought. And a lot of a company's internal comms was like someone's like sixth or seventh job, you know, like, oh, I run, yeah, I run internal comms, but like, I don't have a background in it. I've, you know, maybe it's like the fifth employee of a startup and now they're at like 300 and they just know everything and they know all the players. Um, other companies do hire internal comms people, but, you know, I, I think before there was a lot of focus on like all hands meetings, right? And that was the chance to deliver a lot of content and communications. And then over time, I think also smarter organizations started to build in, you know, real-time feedback or at least ongoing feedback. Because employees, I think it's, it's hard the bigger you get to know what they're thinking. And all and internal comms should be based on, you know, are people burned out? Are people bored? Um, if people are leaving, why are they? Um, but now being remote, I think it creates a lot more chance for dynamic, multiple forms of content, you know? And I think about everything from Slack messages to emails to some of the work that I'm sure your, you know, company is leading with Venly around audio and then, and then video clips too. It became very easy for a CEO to just film themselves on their iPhone and post it on Slack. So the formats I think have gone from like, you know, everybody joined this meeting at this time. If you missed it, here's a write-up. You know, occasionally there'd be some information sent out to like dynamic all the time, multiple formats. And that has gone hand in hand with, I think internal comms becoming much, much more important, um, especially in the tech world where businesses are mostly doing quite well and employee churn is probably one of their biggest challenges. So internal comms becomes this like key pillar, whereas before it may have been an afterthought. So I think in the next five years within comms, internal comms is going to really grow as, um, as a function. I'll get you out on this question. Crisis communications for startups is frequently overlooked because the focus is on company growth and not necessarily risk mitigation. When you counsel your clients, many of which are, as we've discussed, growth stage uh, startups. What's your case for investing in crisis comms? What's the upside for them? Yeah, well, you hit the nail on the head when you talked about how their focus is on company growth and not on risk mitigation. Like that defines startups, right? If they were in risk mitigation, they would have not worked at a startup, you know? And so they deprioritize risk and they really prioritize opportunity and growth. And so to get executives together to plan out a potential hypothetical is, is really hard, especially when you're like, not only are you going to get six executives to spend a few hours on this, you're going to spend a, you know, hire a crisis firm and that costs money. And then there's revisions and all that. And then before you know it, it's like, forget it, we'll deal with it when it comes up. And I think there's three things to do that can help convince companies why crisis comms is so important. The first is you need to make it really simple and actionable. Like here are the steps we're going to take. 
Here's what we're going to plan for. We're not going to go so in depth that it's going to be a six week process. We're going to outline the most likely scenarios. We're going to build uh, you know, a, a communication system and tools so that if there's a new issue that comes up, we all know who to go to. And then I think the second thing is you need to remind the executives of the company, like this is not an if thing, this is a win thing. And maybe there won't be a crisis for two years, or maybe there will be in two weeks, but you're going to be hit and it's going to happen. And it could be uh, an employee lawsuit. It could be a data breach. It could be whatever, right? And I think the last thing, which is where I do think some executives, it starts to go, okay, I get it now, is like the last time you want to be talking about a crisis is after it happened. Because then that's when mistakes happen. Because speed is really important crisis. And so if you're buttoned up and you've built out a process, you can nail it and you can address it and you can speak to it and you can really control the narrative. But if you're spiraling and trying to figure out what's going on after the fact and trying to like piece a system together while also trying to figure out what happened, which is the nature of a crisis, you're going to make mistakes. You're either going to be slow to respond or you're going to respond without thinking things through and getting the approval. So that last point, I think, is really key that like you don't want to be worried about a crisis plan when you're also going through a crisis. It's the same thing as setting up like a go bag in your home, right? You don't want to be collecting water bottles and flashlights and batteries when like there's an earthquake. You want that bag ready to go because the whole issue with an emergency is that speed is really important. I'm joined today by Dan O'Mahony. Dan, the days are long, but the years fly by. That's what everyone keeps telling me. And the first time my, my wife every month is like, he's older. And I still haven't really felt that like, oh, I, I miss the, the six month old. But he's starting preschool August 1 and he's got like a backpack. And that's the first time where I was like, oh, man, where did this little baby go? You know, um, so uh, it's it's going to be an interesting thing. One one dad to another. <laughs> Congrats and good luck. Appreciate you taking some time and all your wisdom today. Thanks, Brian. Really appreciate it.